Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is our Summer Reading 2013 episode. Every summer... We talk about books because this is the time of year when folks are hopefully having a little extra time to read. Hopefully. Hopefully you're on a beach somewhere and you're reading and then you can tell us about it. I would love to hear. I have really weird beach reads. Let me tell you. Last summer, it was a Kurt Vonnegut book. I can't remember which one. I have a couple on my shelf. I can't remember which one it was. And the summer before that, it was the Lee family of Virginia so like an entire book of nonfiction on the Lees, like Robert E. Lee of Virginia, because I'm just like that. Sounds like a page turner. I know. People at the beach are like, what is she? They're holding their mystery novels. They're holding their Fifty Shades of Grey inside <laughs> of like an economist magazine right. to make it look legitimate. Uh, are you reading anything right now? Any good any good books? I actually just finished uh, Monkey Mind, A Memoir of Anxiety by Daniel Smith because I myself have like just a constant low grade baseline anxiety that peaks now and again. And you can tell because I get uh, really sweaty. Um, and I have started reading, I'm, I'm taking a break from the clinical nonfiction stuff to go to, uh, Lamb, the story of Christ's childhood pal, written by Christopher Moore. Huh. I've not heard about that. It's funny. Um, so far, I'm, I'm like only like 150 pages into it. And then I kind of want to read, uh, Brain on Fire by that journalist who, I can't remember her name at the moment, young journalist who basically like, Kind of lost it for a couple of months. Yeah, there was an interview with her on NPR that I've been wanting to listen to her on a uh, fresh air. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with books that have anything to do with the brain or anxiety or anything like that because, like I said, I do get anxiety, but also I get migraines. And so that's why I love reading like Oliver Sacks, who's a neuropsychologist and talks about hallucinations and all sorts of brain circuitry stuff. 
Well, I have been on more of the lighter side. As I mentioned on Facebook a few weeks ago, I have now finished Wild, the memoir by Cheryl Strayed, mm-hmm. who I mentioned in our episode on advice columns. I have a huge writer and just person crush on, uh, she's fantastic in, in so many ways, and I've been wanting to read her memoir, and I did, and it's great, and I highly recommend it. I know a number of listeners commented that they had read it as well, and kind of randomly, I'm reading Carson McCullers, uh, Wedding Guest, huh. or Guest at the Wedding, um, about a 12-year-old girl who has quite an imagination. It's more of a novella, and I just kind of wanted something to just sip through. Right. Little, it's like a fiction palate cleanser. Yeah. And I'm also reading A Natural History of Breasts. Or it's called Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. <laughs> and hopefully we'll have the the author on, but I haven't asked her to come on yet. So if you're listening, author. So... <laughs> This is your formal invitation. Well, I mean, okay, so, but what we're talking about for this summer reading episode is, you know, the title, Can You Judge a Book by Its Gendered Cover? And I was thinking about that with, uh, when I walked out of the bookstore with my copy of Wild and Wedding Guest and this book about breasts, all of which were slightly feminine. I mean, Wild is a boot, a hiking boot on a white background. The Carson McCullers book is a blurred picture of a young girl sort of dancing in a field, mm-hmm. which is very prototypical female mm-hmm. author book. And then breasts, as you can imagine, it's got a silhouette of a lady figure. <laughs> um, but we wanted to talk about book covers more than maybe the substance of books because... Online lately, there has been a lot of discussion prompted by female authors about, hey, guess what? what's going on with these covers? Yeah, and not just the covers, but we'll also get into a little bit of the attitude of male authors being taken more seriously than female authors. There was there was quite a big debate about that online. And you might have heard of this. It was called the Cover Flip Challenge. And it all started out on Twitter when author Maureen Johnson, who, by the way, I went to her personal site and I thought it was kind of interesting. She has a, a very a pinkish personal site. But she kicked off this Cover Flip Challenge to highlight the highly gendered, quote unquote, soft sell book covers in more marketing parlance that are often used for books written by women. And she tweeted, I do wish I had a dime for every email that says, please put a non-girly cover on your book so I can read it. Signed, a guy. And then she tweeted, Project, redesign book covers by literary dudes. Imagine they have been reclassified as by and for women. Hashtag challenge. And hundreds of people responded. And doing this challenge sort of brought up the fact that There is this attitude about gender and about gendered looking books that they're not for boys or for men, which is ridiculous because it's not like boys and men can't read books written by female authors or not even that they can't or that they don't want to. Right, right. Exactly. And so, yeah, she just thought that this whole idea of girl books versus boy books and chiclet, and she says whatever is the guy equivalent of chiclet, gives credit to absolutely no one. And she just wanted uh, people, as she says, to be freed from some of these constraints. 
And so some of the cover flips that were featured in a slideshow over on Huffington Post were of the book Carrie, Game of Thrones, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, Neil Gaiman's Stardust, which I know is a favorite of a number of listeners, On the Road by Jack Kerouac, uh, Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, which kicked off a discussion which we'll talk about as well about uh, gender and literature. Um, also A Clockwork Orange, David Sedaris's Me Talk Pretty One Day, and so forth. And what they did was they made female versions of these, and I say female in quotes, female versions of these uh, covers. And it was really striking to see the visuals. And I wish that for a moment that we could somehow do like an, a video inlay in this podcast so that you could see what we're talking about. Um, but I guess just trust us when we say that it was not very hard to turn something like uh, Game of Thrones into all of a sudden Game of Thrones, <laughs> you know? Right. And there was one big to do in particular over one book, and that is Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Uh, Faber Books, over uh, based in England, uh, re-released it for its 50th anniversary, and people freaked out because the cover image was of a quote-unquote retro babe applying makeup. Which, yeah. which what? It looked very prototypical chiclet cover. You would have no idea, if you had no idea who Sylvia Plath is, what the bell jar is about, it would seem like you were picking up a story about a girl who, uh, I don't know, is going to go on a lot of dates. Or maybe like a Yaya Sisterhood sequel. Exactly. And the theory, according by graphic designer Barbara DeWild, was that, hey, you know what, maybe this publisher is just trying to drag in a young crowd. And the theory was confirmed by said publisher, who wrote... Wrote, in our endless endeavor to keep our backlist writers in the minds and hands of new readers, we often look to packaging as a way of describing an old work afresh. And their defense of putting, you know, this, it's a bright red cover, uh, swirly script, and a woman applying makeup. They say the image on the cover picks up on the beginning of the story where the narrator is encountering conflict between new freedom and old assumptions about women's aspirations. Well, regardless of the defense, I think a lot of people still got their feathers ruffled by it. Absolutely. And while it might seem trivial to spend so much time talking about book jackets when perhaps you might think, well, does it really matter what the cover looks like as long as we're, you know, reading what's inside and really gleaning the meat from that. But in terms of how we consume that media and for new readers out there who are just browsing through bookstores, it absolutely does matter. And I feel like that point was summed up really well in a quote from a New York Times article that came out uh, by the New Republic's Chloe Shama. And she she wrote a brief piece t- asking the question of why there are so many images of female bare backs on books. And there was a, this illustration that they did for it. And indeed, I mean, it was just like title after title that she was listing. And it wasn't necessarily a thing where it was only women's backs on books by women. It was male and female authors. But there seemed to be something to do with uh, all of, well, with it being just this go-to image. But the back issue, a 
side and why book designers may or may not be kind of obsessed with the female back. Uh, her novelist friend said, a book jacket seems to me like the single most efficient way to signal whether a book has substance or not. And I feel like that really sums up the point of even having a conversation about the book jacket. Because if you are an author, it's a very important process, not just the selecting of the title, but also the design of your book jacket probably says a lot about how it's going to be marketed, how it's mm-hmm. going to be reviewed, yeah. and whether or not a publisher is really taking it seriously and considering it you know, a piece of literature that they are proud to put out. Right. I mean, I know this isn't a book written by a woman, but the book Lamb that I just referenced by Christopher Moore, I mean, a lot of his book covers, including Lamb, are very kind of, for lack of a better word, goofy looking. And so you kind of know, like, all right, he's going to write something funny and I'm okay with that. And that's what I'm going after. You know, it's I probably would be put off if I bought a book with a really serious cover and it ended up being hysterical. Well, speaking of which, just on a side note, uh, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune talking about this, and it mentioned how uh, there was an edition, it's actually the edition that I have, of The Feminine Mystique, which has this giant flower on the cover. And I, I hadn't really thought about that before, but it said that this, it was the perfect example of kind of how this marketing is at work. And they interviewed a professor of feminist media studies at the University of Iowa. And she said these covers are using every stereotype of mainstream femininity to visually represent work that specifically challenges those very stereotypes. So it's a really crazy paradox that's going on with the example of something like the feminine mystique. Right. It is funny. I mean, like, uh, you know, are they literally, they, well, they must be. The, the publishers literally must just be trying to get it into the hands of new people. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with publishers wanting to sell books. Right. You know, you and I are very much pro books. We're pro reading. But, uh, within these literary circles, uh, there's a lot of questions about how these books are being sold. And even though the cover flip challenge sprang up pretty recently, a public internet fueled conversation over women writers and how they're marketed and regarded in literary circles as well really first sprang up in 2010, right after the publication and swift Pulitzer nomination of Jonathan Franzen's book, Freedom, which I read. It was great. I love Jonathan Franzen. But Jody Picoult, who wrote House Rules, My Sister's Keeper, she's a very best-selling author. She makes a lot of money off of her books. But nevertheless, she tweets, NYT, New York Times, raved about Franzen's new book. Is anyone shocked? Would love to see the NYT rave about authors who aren't white male literary darlings. And oh, my goodness. I remember when that happened, and it set off this online firestorm. Yeah, and Jennifer Weiner, uh, who wrote Good in Bed and In Her Shoes, other books like that, joined in the conversation. And she said, I think it's a very old and deep-seated double standard that holds that when a man writes about family and feelings, it's literature with a capital L. But when a woman considers the same topics, it's romance or a beach book. In short, it's something unworthy of a serious critic's attention. And they really took the conversation Onward, talking about, you know, who makes the money and who is the critical success. And a lot of times both of them are men. Can I rant for a sec? Please. 
Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Yeah, and the the idea that, uh, you know, a, a book written by a woman is going to inherently, possibly, be considered differently to a critic also goes along with that whole marketing thing of, well, how are these books even being packaged and sold? And while all this is going on, uh, just as another example, uh, Deborah Kopakin Kogan, writing over at The Nation about her own experiences, more like horror stories, really, uh, with the publishing world, said, uh, there's a reason J.K. Rowling's publishers demanded that she use initials instead of Joanne. It's the same reason Marianne Evans used the pen name George Eliot, the same reason Robert Southey, then England's poet laureate, wrote to Charlotte Bronte, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, and it ought not to be. Basically saying that in order to get the respect, then, you know, maybe you need to cloak some femininity, even in your name, if it comes to that. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about that kind of issue and, and, you know, things being taken seriously, perhaps we should have a sidebar and talk about a recent issue that Vice magazine ran into with women literary figures. Oh, mercy. This was I, you know, I run across Vice every now and then. And I mean, I get it. Vice, I get you. I've gotten you for a long time. But and, and I never want to get riled by Vice because I feel like as soon as I get riled about something that's in Vice or or think to myself, how oh, distasteful, then <laughs> Vice is one. Uh-huh. You know, there's a hipster taking a shot of whiskey at a bar, you know, and laughing about me. Um, but Vice had to publicly apologize. Probably the first public apology, even though it was kind of a weak one that they've ever issued because it put out its women in fiction issue 
And in the back of it, there was a fashion spread entitled Last Words, which depicted famous authors, including Sylvia Plath, Virginia Woolf, and Dorothy Parker, all killing themselves, all, all mid-suicide, wearing, wearing clothes that they had on, in the sidebars, calling out the labels and where you could get them. And, I mean, I'll just say, they weren't even well styled, but, um, <laughs> I mean, and the, the internet rightly freaked out about it, mm-hmm. saying this is disgusting. First of all, like, you are depicting the suicide of real people, but I felt like Michelle Dean, writing over at New York Magazine, made some really insightful points about it. She said, suicide is fair game for commentary, regardless of how many others on the Internet cry otherwise when seeing this spread. But slouching indifference and sloppiness do not a real sensation make. To address these women's lives and pain, the work should at least be as smart as those featured. And I felt like that bit about slouching indifference and sloppiness really still gets at the heart of this larger conversation that is happening among women writers. Well, also, I think there's an issue of uh, Jennifer Weiner brought this up too. kind of the fact that men's books like like Franzen's books can, you know, their literature with a capital L versus the family books, like she said. And there's something to men's books that just become universal. You know, you write some epic family saga story and it's taken universally. Everybody feels welcome to read it. But there's something about maybe a woman writing a family saga that maybe has a woman's back on the cover and people are like, oh, well, that's just like a, that's just like a beach read about family stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's often more niche. It's a soft mm-hmm. sell. It's chiclet or something. We did an episode on chiclet a long time ago. And while there are definitely books that focus on, you know, women meeting men and having martinis and running on beaches and such. Mm-hmm. And that's totally fine, too. Um, but it's uh, I think it, it sometimes can do a disservice for um, writers at large. Well, but also there are other people. It's not just the general population who maybe doesn't take women writers or women's novels seriously. There's also the whole issue of reviewing books because you know if if you haven't been to the bookstore in a while you're not keeping up with what amazon's telling you you should read like you know you might pick up a magazine newspaper or internet review about books and a lot of studies have pointed out that the new york times book review mostly mostly reviews white dudes yeah, Vita, which is an organization that focuses on women in literary arts, and a couple of years ago started up a statistical tally of things like the number of books written by women that are reviewed in places like New York Times Book Review, also uh, the number of female journalists featured in magazines, etc. And in their 2012 tally, they found that of all the authors reviewed in the publications that it tracks, and it's a high level publications like New York Times Book Review, nearly three-fourths were men. So, sigh. (laughs) Yeah, and the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting uh, 2008 report on this topic, they looked at the New York Times Book Review from March 2008 to January 2010 and found that 95% of the U.S. authors, and this is niche, of political books were non-Latino whites. And I know that it's not just white men writing books on you know, historical politics or current day politics. But it, it, I mean, that is something interesting to point out because 
a lot of the times reviews like that, especially from those high level publications, are what drives people to go pick up that book. Well, and racial diversity, too, is something that we're not really addressing in this podcast. But it's something that other authors have brought up in this whole conversation of saying, yeah, yeah, women writers, too. But hey, guess what? Uh, writers of color also mm-hmm. exist. And we get even more of a short shrift than probably white women uh, like a Jody Picoult. I mean, no, nothing absolutely nothing against Jody Bacall, but um, you know, there it, it goes down even even deeper than just a gendered issue. But, but back to gender, uh, Meg Wallitzer talked about this in the New York Times book review, actually, in March of 2012, and she brought up that issue of the book jacket. She said, look at some of the jackets of novels by women. Laundry hanging on a line. A little girl in a field of wildflowers. Like the Carson McCullers book that I'm reading right now. A pair of shoes on a beach. Or a single hiking boot, perhaps. An empty swing on the porch of an old yellow house. Compare these with the typeface-only jacket of Chad Harbour novel, The Art of Fielding, or the jumbo lettering on the corrections. Such covers, according to a book publicist I spoke to, Meg Waltzer writes, tells the reader, this book is an event. Yeah, and I can totally see what she means by that. I, you know, I am really drawn to books with strong, bold covers. I, I tend to like that, that that look of of a novel that has like the faded wildflowers on the cover. I'm like, eh. if there if there's an empty rocking chair, I'm probably gonna keep walking. <laughs> probably so. And so you know, covers like uh, the corrections, I find really interesting to look at. Like, and the cover of um, and this will take switch us switch our gears a little bit, but the cover of like a visit from the Goon Squad. Which, though, was, in fact, written by a lady. It just happened to also have a strong graphic cover like some of those other books we mentioned. Yeah, Jennifer Egan's book, Visit from the Goon Squad, is uh, often cited as an exception to this rule because it is a very kind of linear and straightforward type of design. Whereas, as Emily Temple, writing over at Flavorwire, who looked at the gendered cover stuff when she read that Meg Wallitzer piece in the New York Times, and she took a group of books, some written by men and some written by women, and found that for uh, books like uh, Jeffrey Eugenides' The Marriage Plot, Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach that we mentioned, The Tragedy of Arthur by Arthur Phillips, Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, IQ 84 by Haruki Murakami, and The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. She said they all had things in common, such as big, blocky fonts, lots of white and blue and neutral covers, and even the ring on The Marriage Plot almost looks masculine. It looks more like a wedding band. I thought it was a great... The writers who brought up the cover of The Marriage Plot had great things to say. And the one of the points that I really enjoyed was... Because I, I love Jeffrey Eugenides and I loved his book, The Marriage Plot. But one of the writers that we looked at did say, like, all right, that's a man. It has a strong, bold cover. But if it had been written by a woman, if a woman had written a book by the name of The Marriage Plot... What kind of cover would they have given that? And would anyone have read it? You know, like, I mean, Jeffrey Eugenides is a wonderful writer. And so I think regardless of what his cover looks like, people are going to pick up his books. But it was that question of like, I mean, are people just going to walk by a book about marriage 
Yeah. Or, so, or, or so they assume by a woman. Well, and you soften up the font, even though the, the script is a little bit uh, serify, but you soften it up a little bit and you make it a diamond ring instead of a wedding band. And you put the outline of a bride in a veil. And it's instead of Jeffrey Eugenides, it's January Eugenides. <laughs> what is the female equivalent of Jeffrey? Jessica? Jessica Eugenides. Jennifer. Jen Eugenides, Jenny. <laughs> Any, okay, a lady named Eugenides. <laughs> and yeah, it's like a completely different experience. Um, but with the, the group of female written books that Emily Temple pulled together, she looked at The Tiger's Wife by Taya Obrit, uh, Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout, Swamplandia by Karen Russell, A Visit from the Goon Squad, The Exception to the Rules We Talked About, The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Atsuka, and The Help by Catherine Stockett. And she said that they were typified by more serifs, golden yellow coloring, more delicate lettering in general, and more illustration. I mean, but why do you think that is? Why do you think that a publisher can take or will take a family saga written by a woman and make it more flowery script than if a man writes a family saga, which becomes bold lettering and primary colors? Well... I wanted to try to find whether any book designers had something to say about this, mm-hmm. uh, because I don't think that it's it's not some conspiracy. We're not trying to com- claim some conspiracy that right. all book jacket designers are out to make sure that w- women's books never get read or are only read in chiclet book groups, which are fine, too. Um, but I did find a 2007 article in Poets and Writers that talked about the author's often limited role in book jacket design. And they interviewed Karen Temple, who is the founder of the site Readerville. And she noted how, quote unquote, mid-list women's fiction, i.e. chiclet, which I mean, you wouldn't call something like a visit from the goon squad mid-list women's fiction. But just speaking about like uh, more of the kind of, what would you say, just like run-of-the-mill books written by women. She said it's fallen victim to book jacket tropes, kind of in the same way that science fiction is often treated with their very science fiction-y types of designs. And she says you take a really lovely stock photo, especially a landscape or a cityscape, legs or shoes, you superimpose some very pretty serif, there's that word again, letter space type, preferably white, thereupon, it's become every bit as cliche as any other genre covers. So maybe there's a little bit of laziness going on. Maybe it's just, you know, that it has become such a strong and probably well-selling uh, genre, that whole mid-list women's fiction thing that maybe publishers just kind of group it all together and send it out. I don't know. Well, you know, we talked earlier about, um, you know, reviews driving sales, but designer Terry Giuliano Long for Indie Reader does confirm that, hey, People are out there judging books by their cover and that uh, solid writing descriptions and reviews do count. But excellent book jackets can also snag sales. Excuse me. And I know I'm I, I'm not guilty of it because it's not something to be ashamed of. But I've picked up some really attractive looking book covers in bookstores that I might not otherwise have. Well, and I wonder if a piece of all of this is the fact that, you know, women do comprise a majority of book buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but that's a pretty well accepted fact. I mean, you, if you break it down by genre, then you uh, then you have some differences. But overwhelmingly, women do tend to buy more books than men do. So maybe what's going on is... 
in the design process, they're say they're going to say, "Hey, who is our number one customer? Most likely, it's going to be a woman. What a lady's like: laundry on a line and a breeze. I don't know, and a and a vase full of flowers in the window." And I'm, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm a lady who does like some really good graphic design. And I'm sure you do like flowers in the vase in the window. I like real flowers in a vase on a window. Um, but I do hope that we hear from some authors who may have gone through this process of getting a book published and getting a jacket designed, especially if they're doing it with a publishing house, because it seems like unless you are an A-list writer, your hand in that and even selecting the title might not be all that much. Mm-hmm. You might get a book sold and then hope you like what it looks like on the outside. And the thing is, though, the argument that kind of gets swept into all of this that I don't think is valid is the idea that, oh, well, we're just complaining that well-regarded women writers don't exist. No, that's absolutely not true. And that's not uh, what we're saying. I mean, do we need to go through a list of awesome women writers just to prove it? <laughs> we have some. And also... I do think that the argument that, well, men just aren't reading books by or about women is also a flimsy one. Over at Slate, Esther Bloom actually took on that idea that, you know, men don't want to read books by or about women. And she says, really blame the publishers, which brings it all back to this whole cover flip challenge thing and the marketing angle to begin with. And she writes, because publishers, editors and agents fear that men won't read books by women, they encourage people like J.K. Rowling to hide behind gender obscuring initials or pen names and thus they exacerbate the problem. A male seeming author of a well-loved book doesn't help to change the perceptions of a male reader. Just as a child who ate spinach doesn't come to love it when it's blended skillfully into his cupcake. <laughs> And the whole marketing thing doesn't uh, doesn't help much either. I don't know. I, I'm going to be curious to hear from readers and listeners on this because there were some points when I was reading this and I was thinking, maybe this is too much out of nothing. But then hearing directly from authors who have gone through this process, because it's not just about the cover, but it's how it's the cover process. It's the entire publication process, marketing, reviewing, actually breaking into the upper echelons right. of literary circles, which, you know, I'm sure is a Herculean effort. Right. And we, we cited Meg Wallitzer earlier, but she pointed out, uh, I mean, it was her opinion, but she says that some, particularly men, see most fiction by women as one soft, undifferentiated mass that has little to do with them. And I think part of that could be the covers. I mean, book blogger Dan Wagstaff said that the assumption is that women only want to read certain kinds of stories and that men don't want to read books by women at all, that they tend to be pink, that the pictures tend to be pretty and domesticated and completely inoffensive and wistful. And so, yeah, I think that does contribute to the idea that they are all one kind of soft mass where if you actually looked into them deeper. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are plenty, as we said, there are plenty of uh, incredible female authors out there, and it would be a shame that something like the book cover just put people off. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there should definitely be that variety. I mean, I'm thinking about this book called The Dud Avocado that was written, I think, in the 40s or 50s, and it was recently re-released, and the cover was this bright, cheerful green and this picture of uh, a girl probably, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old. Very prototypical girl book. But as soon as I saw it, 
I loved it. I immediately wanted to read it because I was like, I know exactly what this book is going to be. It's going to be about a zany girl trying to figure life out. And that it's sometimes that is exactly what I want. <laughs> and it was. And I just felt like when I was reading this stuff, I kept thinking about that. And I was like, but that's totally fine. You know? Yeah. But contrast that with the bell jar and having like a very similar cover image for that where it's like a girl about 19 or 20 looking like she's trying to figure out life, right. maybe zany. Well, I mean, that goes back to that whole argument that that one professor made about, like, it's it's one thing to, to take a book about a zany girl finding her way through life and put that cheerful, you know, kooky cover on it, but then you take a book like The Bell Jar or The Feminine Mystique and you put, like, a flowery, uh, super girly makeup cover on it, and it's like, well, no, but that's what they're talking about not being, but... I I would like to toss this fact out, though, um, just as a nod to the fact that we don't think there's some like massive conspiracy trying to keep women authors down, especially this is about like women uh, fiction writers. Uh, For instance, the New York Times did vote Beloved by Toni Morrison as the best novel of the past 25 years. It's fantastic. So we got that. And we got Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad and like a million other books by women. And I'm not saying that we should only write, read books by women or, you know, men's books are overappreciated. I love male authors as well. But there is that attitude that women writers aren't as serious that we still do have to overcome. And I'm not, there are bad male authors. There are bad female authors. I've read them both. I've read good and bad books by both genders, but, uh, I th- I think there are some attitudes out there that we can overcome. Yeah. Well, I know we've got some librarians who listen, uh, booksellers, writers. We want to hear from all of you, people who are might be a little closer to the industry. Really curious to get your thoughts. And also for just listeners, in terms of your beach reading, what are you reading? And when you're picking out a book, does the cover make a difference? Do you judge your books by their covers? Or are all of your books ebooks and so you don't care or notice what the cover looks like? That is such a good point too that we didn't even bring up. Well now we will leave it to our readers to educate us. Okay. Or, or you know, you're you're our listeners, but you are also readers. Yes, we do have a very a very uh literate audience, I know. So I can't wait to hear from everybody on this momstuff at discovery.com is where you can email us. You can tweet us your thoughts at momstuff podcast or send us a Facebook message. And we've got a couple of messages to read. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll get right back. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. 
Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And now back to our letters. And these are a couple of messages we've gotten from Facebook. Bonnie writes, I'm 30 and just about to undergo a prophylactic mastectomy. And I was wondering if you could do a podcast on the BRCA1 and 2 gene variants. Those are, by the way, known as the, the breast cancer genes. And she says, this gene is in fact patented, although update, the Supreme Court did uh, rule that you cannot patent genes, so it is no longer patented. Uh, she says, knowing this information is really crucial information for young women who may have a history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer in the family. And I wanted to read her message because a long, long time ago, we did an episode on gene patenting, focusing on BRCA1 and gene variants, and with the whole news about uh, Angelina Jolie's uh, preemptive mastectomy, for instance, and the developments with gene patenting, I wanted to reach out to listeners to say, hey, do you all want an update episode on the breast cancer gene? And if so, we'll do it. But we got to hear from you. So tweet us, Facebook us, send us a telegram. Actually, no, you can't send telegrams anymore. Uh, uh, singing telegrams? Send us a pajamagram. Oh, yay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you want to hear uh, an update episode on the breast cancer genes, just let us know and we'll do it. Okay, well, speaking of books and librarians and such, Anne, the librarian, wrote to us and said, in response to the podcast about gender and financial literacy slash illiteracy, I have a fantastic book recommendations for listeners of any gender that want straightforward information about how investments work and, more importantly, how to make your money work for you. It's called The Boglehead Guide to Investing by Taylor Laramore, Mel Lindauer, and Michael LaBeouf. The title's certainly not as sparkly as some of the titles mentioned in the podcast, but I, as I imagine many others also do, prefer that these financial concepts be explained in accurate, real-world scenarios as opposed to being compared somehow to buying shoes. I know, seriously, Anne. I know. Me too. Okay. So she continues, The advice is meant for people of all income brackets, and it has certainly helped me understand where my money goes and how to create a strong financial plan. It's available on Amazon and bookstores and, of course, from Anne at her library. And she includes a P.S. that I enjoy because I get really angry when strange men on the street or on the train uh, or really anywhere tell me to smile. Because get out of my face. What is your problem? I just wrote a blog post about that recently, which people can find on our How Stuff Works blog. Well, she says, uh, P.S., I also have a topic suggestion, which we welcome all of your topic suggestions. She says, street harassment. There's been a lot of buzz lately about artist Tatiana Fazlalizade and her Stop Telling Women to Smile Gorilla campaign. I think it would be interesting to explore why men harass women on the street 
Gender differences in street harassment and the debate between it being harmless or threatening and degrading. Well, I've got good news. There's a podcast about it, and the title is Why Do Men Catcall, I believe. And we talk about Hollaback, which is a great organization that has really taken on street harassment and empowered women to uh, stop street harassment in its tracks safely. So maybe I'll post a link yeah. to that episode. Um, and yeah, thanks to everyone who's written in. We love your suggestions. Uh, keep them coming. MomStuffAdiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Like us on Facebook. Leave us a message there. You can follow us on Tumblr as well. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And finally... You can watch us as well. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We come out with new stuff four times a week. We are at youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.